Good afternoon, everyone. It's a rare occasion where Blaine Bartlett and I get to hang out in the middle of the day. I know 10 a.m. on the West Coast may not be the middle of the day for everyone, but it's certainly the middle of the day for Blaine Bartlett and I. At times, more than often, have a 5 a.m. wake-up call when it comes to office hour, but over 535 episodes later, it's been well worth it. And to uh, have Blaine Bartwell Bartlett with us has always been an honor, and I just want to acknowledge you for showing up, my friend, to this great show. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Always looking forward to Thursday with you. Well, this is a Back to the Future uh, episode for me. we got an incredible entrepreneur joining us today. Uh, I've known him and his company for a while. I think it was one of the first companies that was on one of my original shows, which still is around, uh, Elevator Pitch with Entrepreneur Magazine. Elevator uh, Pitch. CEO of Furnish. And, you know, ever since I've met Michael, you know, originally I looked at his business and t talked about the uh, future of uh, living and how people live and how they move. And what, what I really have learned over the years is that uh, the, one of the most diminishing values of assets that I have is furniture. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I am amazed how I can spend thousands. Talk about a car. When you drive it off the lot, it's worth 30% left. When you get a piece of furniture to your home, it's worth 70% less at best. Uh, even in the box, for some reason, even in the box, if it's in your home, from the time you leave the retailer uh, or wholesaler to the time it arrives at your home in a box, you lose at least 50%, if not 70%. Um, and so, you know, looking at these two critical life issues on how people live and then two, they furnish what they live in. Uh, I have come across one of the greatest companies, Furnish.com. It's F-E-N-F-E-R-N-I-S-H.com. But their CEO and co-founder, Michael Barlow, is leading the way in so many different sustainable and economic issues. I want to thank you, Michael, for joining us and congratulations on all your success. Great, great to be here, David. As always, I think this is the second time we've we've done this together in as many years. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you as the front, the front man or the front person pitching the business. I mean, if you could join for future investor pitches, I'd be very grateful because I love the way you tie that together um, from a story storytelling perspective. And it's not just a story, you know, it's emotionally connecting with parents and children and Gen Z's and Y's and E's out, whoever out there. Um, you know, what have you learned over the years since I've met you to be, you know, those priorities of the business? You know, where is that economic uh, business model that is, you know, proven to be successful? You know, wh where's those capabilities that, that we're talking about today? Yeah, man, like you, like you mentioned, David, the connectivity with an audience or a community. I mean, we're a business built around life moments and making those life moments of transition and the excitement of moving to a new place or a new space or into a new job or city with this new set of roommates or graduating college and getting your first apartment with friends out of UCLA or NYU or in one of the big cities across the country. Like these are such important and valuable life moments. And we're looking at those and saying, how do we remove the stress and turn that into excitement? You know, make the whole like hashtag of adulting very real for someone who's 24 or 27 
who's moving on to a new life stage again in a new city or a new you know a new moment in life and that's what our business model is about you know we tackle that from a, from the asset class of furniture which is a really unique asset class and category as you mentioned a lot of assets lose value when they go off the lot so to speak but they don't use lose their utility you know furniture if it's made correctly which is what we're laser focused on building modular, well-produced, sustainable products that can be reused and refurbished, refinished and recycled. So they don't have to quote unquote, lose value. Like you can put something in a like new state into someone else's home, even though it's been used for a year, sometimes maybe two years by someone else. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. If you would ask me when we met four to five years ago, David, how much I would know about refinishing and refurbishing furniture and the construction of a sofa. Um, I just, I just, it's been overwhelming my learning <laughs> here in this business, but it also takes, as you've seen on your own entrepreneurial journey, like someone inside the furniture industry isn't going to go start a highly disruptive, highly complicated business because they just know too much. And that's some of the part of the journey in this scenario for me, this really being my second startup um, that I've, that I've learned and appreciated uh, meaningfully. So there's a lot there. I mean, I'll pause and I can unpack any side of it. Yeah. You, I, I love this, Michael. Uh, and I was just kind of reading some of the, uh, the cliff notes that I got before the show here, uh, you know, kind of highlighting who you are, uh, what you're paying attention to. And I was particularly struck um, by the notion that furniture isn't just furniture. And in in, in what I mean by that is, and David, and I talk about this in the Compassionate Capitalism book that we uh, co-authored together. Um, the purpose of business is to uplift the experience of thriving on the planet. That's the purpose of business. How do people feel about themselves when they're in the presence of your product or service? And with that in mind, you know, you talk about frictionless. I remember when I was you know, coming into university and my first bookcase, and I'm looking at the one behind you right now. My first bookcase was built off of cinder blocks and boards. And yeah. And it was kind of like, you know, you know milk, cartons, milk cartons or cinder blocks, right? Yeah, exactly. Milk As cartons nightstands, cinder yeah. Milk cartons as nightstands, yeah. And aesthetically, it sucked. But utilitarian-wise, it worked okay. What I'm seeing right now, and, and it always kind of grated at me when I'd come home and I'd, you know, back to the apartment and I'd see this thing. Now, I'd yeah. hold the books, it was functional. But from an aesthetic perspective, and, and this is where I'm going with this. There's, there's something called ontological design, where the environment designs me in return. I design the, the environment, it designs me in return. The content of that environment is important. And so what I'm you know, intrigued by here is the way that you're using furniture as a way to design an experience that ultimately will design the individual that is purchasing what you're actually uh, offering. How did you, now that's my language for it, but yeah, number one, is that a fair assessment? And number two, how did you actually, because it is, if it is a fair assessment, it's highly disruptive because you're not just selling a stick of furniture, you're, you're selling an experience. Yes. Where does, yeah. yeah, how does that work for you? I, I, absolutely. I mean, we, we definitely don't see ourselves simply as a furniture business. If you look at the nuts and bolts of the operation and the supply chain, the delivery mechanisms, um, and maybe even the technology that we've built behind the logistics, of our business, which is, which is heavy and it is complex. There's a lot of elements of, you know, a furniture business there. However, if you look at how we've branded 
um, and structured our, whether our social presence or what you just see in the language on the website or how we communicate with our customers on our customer service channels or our marketing messaging or our out of home branding. I mean, it is all about a lifestyle oriented service that is enabling you a more free and frictionless existence. One where you don't have the stress, hassles, worries, or even costs of buying, owning, moving, selling, storing an asset that you don't even want to think about. Like, I don't want to think about when I, I remember when I moved from New York to Los Angeles in 2015, after living with three different sets of roommates and four apartments over five years in New York, which is a very typical experience. I'm sure you, you yeah. maybe you've seen that yourselves. Maybe your kids have seen that, but certainly some of your listeners have. And I had to figure out how I'm going to move all the stuff I wasn't even proud of and wasn't even going to fit into my new LA, you know, apartment down in Venice. I was, you know, leaving corporate America to do the startup thing. And it was the biggest hassle. It took away so much of excitement on this move and this transition point. And so I wasn't thinking about it as furniture at the time. I was just thinking about this as this is a hassle. This is a cost. This is a headache. You know, how can I inject or insert a service to change that in a meaningful way? And it is some, you know, we really try to connect from on an emotional level with our customers and, you know, with our corporate partners too on the corporate side of the business. So I think there's, you know, there's definitely a lot of truth to what you're saying there, Blaine. And I think that's also indicative of, you know, well-functioning brand aims that aimed at millennials or Gen Zs in the 21st century. Like you just have to have that emotional connection. You have to be solving a real problem in their life and have a couple other elements which I can get into, but, you know, those are the main ones. And that's yeah. where we're laser focused too. I love that. Thank you. And Michael, you know, in that book that uh, we co-authored, more uh, Blaine authored in iCode. Uh, <laughs> I'm a great storyteller, Michael. So he just he brought me along to tell stories of all the great writings that he had and lessons that he's learned. Uh, but more importantly, uh, <coughs> one of the aspects of the business that was extremely exciting for me as an entrepreneur, as an investor. Uh, was the 9.8 million tons or more of furniture, useful utility that yeah. ends up in a landfill. And it's not just the impact that it has our environment. Uh, you can imagine 9.8 million tons, uh, so many people that could be utilizing or refurbishing or refinishing uh, this as well beyond the sustainable practice. And when I think about compassionate capitalism, I think about leaders, servant leaders like yourself that challenge themselves just to make money, but to help people as well. And, you know, along with that, I believe comes joy, harmony, peace, and uh, happiness uh, of having fun doing it. Um, but for you, I mean, think about the significant impact you have according to just being compassionate. Um, what impact already have you had? I know, you know, you're a startup uh, thing, what you, 2018 or so, uh, we, we first met. Um, you must have already seen a quantitative value that you've provided to mankind. Yeah, it's a great point, David. And, you know, that 9.8 million tons, that's every year. That's just not like once in a while. <laughs> that's every year. Right. It seems like a lifetime, you know, but it's every that. year. Half half of the furniture and decor that's sold in the U.S. This is an amazing stat, by the way. Half the furniture and decor that's sold in the U.S. ends up in landfill after nine months. Half of it 
right? And that's a lot being sold actually to college campuses and dorm rooms. And if you walk around <laughs> any dumpster on like graduation week outside of any campus in the US, it looks like a bomb went off. And that's like how we're training um, consumers who are coming out. It's like fast fashion in many ways. Oh, I can just throw everything away after a year and I'll do that the same, I'll, I'll, I'll mirror that behavior going into my first year living with roommates in Chicago or Manhattan or Miami or wherever. And that's just a bad pattern of behavior generally. And so educating consumers while providing them with a high degree of service at a cost-effective kind of price point where they can play is, you know, it's a tricky needle to thread in many ways. I think we're, we're getting better and better and we have a nice formula to do so. I think one stat, David, directly to your question that we're proud of is we've saved over 2 million pounds of furniture from landfill you know, in the past four years of operation. And I think that's, that's exciting for us, you know, as we scale and grow and, 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 and grow and expand, you know, we want that to be 10 million and all these other, you know, big numbers that we can put behind it, but it's something we're proud of. I mean, that is refinished, refurbished and reused furniture that otherwise would have absolutely just been returned to landfill or left in an apartment by, you know, some young professional who didn't want to pay the money to move the product to a new place or space that it wasn't going to fit or it wasn't going to fit their lifestyle or wasn't going to, you know, progress with who they were in terms of design. I mean, Blaine, I like your example of milk, milk cartons and cardboard because I've seen you've, you've definitely elevated your design over the years. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but like, that's the same journey that everyone's on. Everyone wants that nice bookshelf that you or I have, um, behind them, but who's going to be able to pay out of college, you know, five, $600, if not more for a nice piece of furniture, you know, what if you say you could pay $18 a month and then you can decide what to do with it or have it move for free, or if it doesn't fit in your next space, return it, then it goes to David, you know, then it goes to John then it goes to Sarah. And I think that's, that's the story that we're really trying to tell. And it's a nuanced one for sure, because you have so many elements of convenience, flexibility, sustainability, and just real problem pain point solving. Um, but we've invested a lot on, you know, a strong marketing team and branding team to help tell that story. Good. Yeah. And the furniture is worse than a boat. You know, you don't want to buy it if you can rent it. Uh, and uh, they're literally in what it costs to dispose it and ruin our earth and, there's so much waste involved, you know, why not take the expense of what it costs in waste and just put it to utility? That's what furnish represents to me. And I'm more than happy to be a spokesperson wherever you need me, Michael, because I'm a firm believer, not only in the company, but in its leader, uh, Michael Barlow. Thank you. I'm sure we'll have you back. Keep up the great work. Keep inspiring entrepreneurs to look and to see things at a deeper level, a compassionate capitalist level. Co-founder and CEO of Furnish with an E. F-E-R-N-I-S-H. If uh, your utilization of your furniture is not optimized, it's the best company in the world to reach out to. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Thanks for joining me. Good to see you both. Talk to you soon, guys. Great having you, you on the show, Thank Michael. You. All right. I feel so proud when I have uh, young entrepreneurs like that, that uh, it's been about five years, I think. And to see an evolution in enlightenment and awareness to how much good we can do while we make a lot of money. Uh, but our next author and professor, of course, speaker, when it's, it's very rare that you have an author and a professor that doesn't speak. Uh, uh, very <laughs> few. Uh, but <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, but uh, 
and you know this author writes uh, an incre incredible content um and inspires so many uh he's fairly educated as well from some of the greatest schools uh here in the world uh, but he wrote a book blaine that i know absolutely uh is inspiring to you uh perennials like the mega trends creating a post-generational society we talk about this all the time uh, just to cut in August, uh, in the, I think the August 22nd, was that right, Mario? Mario? Uh, it came out uh, at the end of August. End of August. Oh, okay, perfect. And Mario, Mario Guillen is the author and professor and speaker that I'm discussing here. And uh, he talks about these different terms that I get confused all the time. And I think my kids fall into several of these categories and I fall into a category and I know my boom friend over there, the double B, Blaine Bartlett, falls into a category. It's bad enough that I can't understand which ones are which ones, uh, but we have this post-generational workforce known as the perennials. And you've written this book about the trends that exist. You know, what was the catalyst? The, you know, there's always this key idea that comes to us when we write a book or begin to speak on a topic. What, what was that first thought that you had saying, I gotta figure this out because there is something changing in the world and I can help people. Yeah, so I was uh, giving a talk to a group of uh, directors of zoos and aquariums in the United States and abroad in the middle of the pandemic, this was. I was, uh, you know, for the first time addressing this kind of an audience. And they were telling me that they had a lot of difficulty bringing people into zoos or aquariums who were not very young or very old. So that would be the grandchildren and the grandparents. And it dawned on me that uh, maybe we should think about generations and the role that they play relative to one another. And one thing led to the next. And in the end, I came up with this book, which is really about a post-generational world, a world in which generations don't matter as much. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting. I love the fact that it was zoos and aquariums, Blaine. Yeah, yeah I do too. You know, I, uh, I do a fair amount of work with family offices, which is a multi-generational play. Yeah. Um, and one of the key questions that's always in place here is, yeah, how do we engage that next generation? Yeah, and yeah, you know, sometimes it's even two generational question. Yeah, you know, my current generation, but the the next one and the one following that. So there's a longer term view there, and part of the challenge there is the mindset that we're different than they are, or they are different than we are. And what I'm intrigued with, you know, Mauro, is you just kind of how in a post generational conversation and a post generational dialogue those differences get buffered so that you're actually speaking from more or less kind of a common platform that is meaningful and relevant to all of the, you know, the different cohorts, if you will, that are engaged yeah. there. So, so I think in the context of one family, it does make sense to talk about the grandchildren or to talk about the children or talk about mm -hmm. the parents, right? But more broadly, when we're thinking about consumer markets, when we're thinking about uh, the whole United States, uh, to generalize and say, oh, millennials are this way, or Generation X uh, are that other way, it's always stereotypical. And also just think about it. I mean, the boundaries between generations are completely artificial and arbitrary, right? So we, we identify a particular year as the boundary between two generations. Well, there's no evidence that actually those years make sense. In other words, that people who are very close to that year uh, behave very, very similarly, right? But yet we may classify them in different generations. So I think this is a, a, an American obsession. You see, it all started way back then when we were comparing the generation that fought in World War II with the baby boomers, right? The baby boomers, of course, were born into affluence, right? 
uh, those who fought in World War II prior to that, they had to go through the Great Depression. So, of course, when there are such differences, stark differences between the kinds of events that generations are exposed to, then it makes sense. But today, I think we're inventing generations. I think we're inventing them in our minds. I think that's a great, that's a great answer. I like that. Thank you. Mauro, one of the things that's really interesting and in looking back at your best-selling book, the Wall Street best-selling book that you had, 2030, um, you seem to pay attention and then give intention of what you believe, the trends of what people will think, say, do, believe, and feel themselves, uh, or trajectory that you see. But one of the interesting aspects in your previous book that I think you're utilizing in perennials is the idea of lateral thinking. Uh, when we talk about perennials and generational, that's a vertical type of perspective. Uh, I would love for you to you know, lend your expertise to our community of the advantage when we're looking and deciphering trends and looking at human nature will impact that, how this lateral thinking can be utilized uh, as you have utilized it in both of your books. Yeah. So... Um... We all, I think, agree in that everything seems to be related to everything else in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so lateral thinking means that uh, we don't focus just on one trend at a time, but rather we look for the interactions among trends, right? So there may be demographic trends that interact with technology, and they in turn interact with something that is going on in the economy. And that's really, really important to keep in mind, right? So, for example, in the case of the perennials, what we're confronting, I think, is this situation in which you know, we can no longer afford to just learn when we are relatively young, thinking that whatever we learn at that point then is going to last, is going to be yeah. valuable for the rest of our lives, right? Why? Well, because there's technological change that makes all of that obsolete. But not only that, the lateral thinking there also tells me that life expectancy should be also considered because we're living longer and longer and longer. So, you know, that old idea that we could just go to school once, right, was okay when people on average live 50 years, right? but not when people on average live 85, right? So it's the combination of life expectancy and technological obsolescence, right? That is really making it impossible for anybody not to go back to school now. You know, I love that relational dynamic. You know, my take on change, technological change or societal change, yeah. The problem isn't, isn't with the change itself, typically. It's the disruption to the relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That change causes, and what I'm, you know, kind of gleaning from both, you know, the book 2030, uh, but also from the perennials, is that there's a large intent to have a focus on the quality of the relational dynamic, not so much the episodic dynamic. Absolutely, absolutely. What, another way of putting it is that uh, all of these trends are part of a system. Exactly. And you move one piece of the system, and everything else is affected, right? You move one piece, just imagine you're building like a, uh, with the little blocks, right? You're building some, something on the table. Uh, well, if you move one block, maybe the whole thing collapses or maybe not. That's what lateral thinking helps you see. Yeah. And you know, looking great. at that, it's so interesting because there, there's one new technology. And I always look at in the aspect of a lateral thinker and understanding. I study a lot of history, not just because I can speak with Blaine, uh, and get to his level of knowledge by understanding what has happened, but it really displays human nature. Um, it, you know, human nature never changes. And at the core of the interrelational aspects of trends uh, is a constant of human nature. Um, and now human nature is changing 
uh, with AI. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it provides an amplification of human nature, but it's a, still a challenge to understand how it's our servant, not our master. Um, and so I was wondering through the complete analysis that you've been given in trends in human nature and this inner relativity, how is AI going to play a role, you know, not only in your older, book, but all in this newest book uh, in the mega trends? I'm sure AI is going to play an important role uh, as you see it. Oh, absolutely. And in the perennials in the book, I do refer to AI multiple times. So the way I see it is AI can amplify some of our, you know, best behaviors. It can also amplify some of our worst behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can also help us compensate for things that... Uh, so let me give you two examples, right? So it can amplify, for example, our biases, right? So we have biases against certain kinds of people, or we are, let's say, too risk-averse or not risk-averse enough. AI can magnify, can make those biases bigger. But AI can also help us compensate. So, for example, we all decline from a cognitive point of view as we grow older. And in fact, uh, you know, people forget that we start to decline in our 20s. It's just that it accelerates much later, right? But the, the cognitive decline starts very, it's scary, right? It starts very, very early. And then it accelerates when, we've, when we turn 50, 60, 70. So AI can help us compensate for that. Maybe we don't remember something, our memory is failing us. We don't remember a formula that we need to use at work or whatever. Well, AI can really empower those individuals who are being affected by cognitive decline. And I think they will be able to work longer uh, in the future if they use AI effectively. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, uh, from the position of diversity and inclusion, just as an example there, um, yeah. can you speak to how AI can actually impact the diversity inclusion you know, conundrum, if you will, in, in businesses no. today, because that oftentimes is a generational, not just a societal, but it's a generational uh, yeah, issue. Yeah, so absolutely. So there are all of these experiments where they have uh, essentially asked the people to evaluate resumes, CVs of people who have applied for a job. Yep. And uh, humans, we all have our biases. So people start, uh, you know, discriminating against that people who they think are too young or they're too tall or they're too short, whatever dimension, right? Uh, you know, of a certain ethnicity and so on and so forth. And then what they did was have uh, an algorithm based on AI do the same kind of thing. And it also had built-in biases because AI is getting whatever information it can from the web, right? And it's reprocessing it and repackaging it and then giving us an answer to questions. And essentially, it is then picking up biases as well. So actually... Um, job selection or applicant selection based on AI is not less biased necessarily than applicant selection performed by a human being. Fascinating. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Mauro, you know, you are uh, raising the awareness to why we created this show. Uh, and it wasn't just because Stanford rejected me and I couldn't figure out a better way <laughs> to, learn, to learn from Stanford professors. You've done well. You've done well. <laughs> well but Blaine and I are blessed to uh, also add to the curriculum and, and uh, empower students at the finest institution like Wharton and Yale and other places where you have uh, really infused a different perspective. And, you know, I'd like to finish up in the last two minutes. You know, I always say, change the way you look at things and the thing you look at change, but it takes teachers like you and Blaine, mentors like you and Blaine, in order to help facilitate the perspective, the participation in a perspective. Um, you've been teaching for a long time like Blaine. What do you see as the newest challenge in helping to 
share a new perspective with the new generation? Well, they're different than us, uh, at least in, the, in terms of how they learn, although we cannot generalize. But let me tell you the example. You know why they love pre-recorded teaching materials so that I record my lectures and then they watch the lectures? They love that because they play them at 130% speed. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> in, the classroom, in the classroom, you cannot do that, right? So they like to be in control. That's my interpretation. They like to be in control nice. of their learning. And um, that's why they like online learning. That's why they like all of these new technologies. And I think we need to do more in that respect because they do learn in a different way than Blaine and I learned. Well, thank you for not including me in that generation, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I have learned so much from both of you, and that's what this platform is about with Office Hours. Uh, please make one promise to Blaine and I that you will come to other shows of ours and share your experience and wisdom. I would be delighted to uh, to come again. So please let me know. Absolutely. Okay. We, we will reach out to you for sure. Thank you, Marl. I look forward Thank to finishing so the book as well. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That's awesome. Yeah, check it. out both his books. Uh, you can go ahead. It's across the bottom there. But uh, you can yeah. find it at the, the Wharton website at maro-gien.com. And you can always email Blaine or I too if uh, you don't know how to spell that. But it's flashed up there. All right, our final guest is waiting in the wings. Uh, and uh, there he is. I believe his name is John, although he went with J-O-H uh, oh, in there. Uh, okay, good. You're, you're a better man than me. Uh, John <laughs> Sapient, CEO of Volition America, volitionamerica.com. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me. Sorry about the typo. Yeah, no, it's perfect. <laughs> well, you, 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 we got to correct it already. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're easy. Um, look, you, you know, my mission is to empower others, to empower others, uh, to be happy, to make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. Um, and I can't think of a better organization than Volition America. Uh, it's helping us drive that empowerment uh, by making great choices um, and uh, preserving what, what I call freedom, but it's really preserving options, opportunities, and touches of favor for everyone in America. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, i blessed like Blaine, probably, you know, I know Blaine and I have changed our official address with the banks and institutions to seat 3B. Uh, that's our, we share the same address now, Blaine. Uh, yeah. But in that effect, we get to see around the world, you know, the differences of options, opportunities, and touches of favor. And what I find in America is still today, it's the only place in the world where you can be lying on a street, addicted to drugs, sleeping literally in garbage with absolutely nothing, and someday end up being the best at whatever you want to be. And that to me is America. And it's dependent on the power of choice. And that's, to me, what Volition America does is it empowers people to prioritize choices and support those people to give them the options, opportunities, and touches of favor. You've done this and provided over $130 million of scholarship money to children and spouses of fallen soldiers who, uh, because of their parents' uh, efforts to save that freedom, have now been put to a detriment or a challenge to have their own. And so number one, I want to thank you for that. But two, would love for you to 
talk about your inspired story of why you put so much behind since 2016 Volition America. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. It was a really good introduction. You hit it head on. Um, the thing I got to say first start is Folds of Honor is kind of the charity behind Volition America. And they're the vehicle that's driving the scholarships to uh, the fallen soldiers and first responder families. So they've raised, actually now, they've raised $220 million and 44,000 scholarships. I cannot take credit for that. I mean, my background, I, I've shared this before with a lot of people, but I'm a, I own a couple of manufacturing companies and I became a Folds of Honor donor. So I really was an active donor to Folds of Honor and the founder of Folds of Honor is Lieutenant Colonel Dan Rooney, who's a uh, golf pro turned fighter pilot. He had the idea of Volition America. So he kind of pulled me aside one day and said, do you know what volition means? And he said, well, it's the most powerful word in the English dictionary. It's power choice. You can be happy, sad, love, hate. Just know the choices you write, write the legacy of your life. And I thought he was giving me a life lesson, but he had a business idea of Volition America, choosing America, and a percentage of everything we sell goes back to Folds of Honor. So the idea behind Volition was to, to empower people with American values and pull our country together, regardless of how you feel, just through common um, empowerment and good thoughts and good choices. And so I started this in 2017 and really, I realized really quickly that I could not build a brand organically with just making a clothes or t-shirt and go sell it. And I thought the easiest way to do that would be to collaborate with large brands. And so now we have, we started with Puma and Cobra and golf, and now we're up to 11 large lifestyle brands. And the whole idea is to bring large audiences together spread the common word of what volition is and choosing America and by the way, giving back. And so that that's my background. And it's been really fun to do this and watch the people really embrace this brand. The idea of, of and I'm going to just kind of focus on this <clears throat> lifestyle brands. Everybody has a lifestyle. And mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I'm very, very cognizant of just from a volition perspective my circumstances don't define who I am or what, or what I become. It's the choices that I make in the now that define what I end up actually you know, being in the future. And I mean being, not necessarily having. Right. But yeah, in the work that you do, yeah, both with Folds of America, but also with Volition, how, does, you know, how do you translate that into action in a way well, that uh, makes, makes things happen? Yeah, we're doing a couple of things. I mean, first off, our idea was to give someone a uniform for life and uh, basically, you know, rather than try to invent the coolest, greatest new clothing line, go partner with people that have products that they already want and give them the badge would actually mean something to them where when they put it on, this is what I stand for. Mm -hmm. So the idea of uniform for life, whether you're golfing, whether you're going to go play pickleball, fish, whatever, you could reach in your closet and grab something and say, this, this is something that inspires me. And by the way, I can help people. So the brand itself is growing through using all these audiences as a vehicle. And then the other thing, and it was kind of funny because when I, I don't know if you guys watched the Super Bowl in 2020 and everybody was talking about uniting the country. And I remember rolling my eyes because we've been talking about it since 2016 and it's just rhetoric. And I looked at the guys that I work with on this and I said, how are we going to do something different that we pull people together and we're actually not a marketing tool. We're actually doing stuff. So we're talking to a lot of people about doing events. We ran a 5K and a half marathon on a soldier field where people were running for Volition America and percentages going back to Folds of Honor. 
So it's really about getting large audiences together and teaching them that you can have very conflicting ideas and still come together and respect each other. And so it's a variety of different things, but the biggest thing for me is force multiplying through large audiences. Yeah. It's interesting that you say because throughout that campaign and heightened awareness of unification, uh, people talked about, you know, let's find similes, let's find the common ground, blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, you know, my perspective was let's learn to appreciate, discriminate our differences. Uh, that our differences provide value to each other. And it's not a matter of appreciating how we're similar, you know, because that's obvious. But I think instead of discriminating, appreciating the differences causes that unification. And one of the things that volition means and does is to choose to find the light, the love, and the lessons in people that are not the same as us because yeah. we are all Americans. And understanding prioritization within the context of volition is very important. I would imagine since you've been at this for, you know, over seven years uh, and in business that you may have a few great tips. For us. It's not just the power of making a choice, but the prioritization within the context of making that choice. Uh, could you share with us, you know, a tip or two that you've learned uh, making this your forefront of attention about making choices and prioritizing with the concept of that choice? I think you hit, you hit on something really early on. America's a democracy. And the idea is, is to have conflicting ideas. And that's how we come to better decisions. And I've used that in my business career all the time. I always tease people. I say, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. You're going to have to explain it to me. And I love contradictory thoughts because you ultimately, as a group, come together with a better choice. And from a business perspective, I mean, my biggest life lessons are, you know, you fight through whatever obstacles you get and whether it's been my other businesses or this, there's been plenty of obstacles. Um, but it's the perseverance to just forge ahead. And, you know, when people make choices that, Oh, that's too hard. I'm going to quit. This is, you know, I, I also talk about prisoner of common assumption. And I talk about this all the time at work where, Oh, we can't ask a vendor that because they're going to say no. Well, how do you know until you actually ask the questions? So people fail a lot of times because they're afraid of, they think they know the answer before they even know the answer. And for me, for Volition, there's no reason that I should have been able to do what we've been able to do, which is get all these brands to come together and join this mission. Because all we had was a logo and an idea and Puma signed on with us. And so getting all these other brands like Luminox and Rucci and Hook and it, the beta was built with Puma. But it's been really interesting to me that through perseverance and hard work and a lot of unwillingness to quit, we built this brand coalition of all these large brands. So if I told your audience anything, you make choices, but you got to be willing to change your mind and fight through it and pivot a little bit and not quit. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me about that choice making scenario that you described there is an orientation towards that desired outcome that doesn't exist right now. Now I'm right. just kind of speaking to the, the choir in, in terms of a lot of our audience at this point. But that, that idea of choice making, I remember uh, a conversation I had with Lee Iacocca years ago. Um, and we were talking about the nature of, you know, how did he turn around Chrysler? Um, and, you know, there's a whole story I won't go into. But one of the things that struck me was how unreasonable he was perceived as being with his you know, management team at the time that he was trying to move the needle. And 
the uh, epiphany, if you will, uh, and it seems commonsensical right now, but reasonable people will tend to get reasonable results and they will tend to offer reasons for why things can't get done. Unreasonable people don't give a damn about that. <laughs> yeah, this is what we want to have. And they will get unreasonable about how they go about getting it. And it's highly disruptive, but it is a function of choices. I'm not yeah. going to be controlled by my circumstances. Yeah, I absolutely set my eye on a goal. And then unless it's data is coming in saying that we can't achieve it, I'm unwilling to waver from it. And I believe that this brand stands for something everybody wants. And so there's a lot of hours and energy put into networking and connecting and adding people. And it's pretty fun. It's really neat to give back. And it's really neat to see, you know, my wife said this to me the other day, what if you're the guy to help unite the country? I'm like, I don't think that's true, but it's pretty neat to try. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We know yeah. part of that uh, from what you pay attention to and elevating the awareness of what we do want instead of a lot of that disparagement and separation is created by people focusing in on what we don't want, what's missing, what we don't have instead of on what we do want or we do have. And I think part of Volition and Volition America is helping people to remind, remember and recollect uh, our country and purpose of our country is to uh, focus in on what we want and what we do have uh, by that uh, process of appreciation. Unsapient, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And I tend to agree with your wife. Uh, you know, so. It takes thank the entrepreneurs you. to save the world and uh, keep up the great work. Remember, everything aggregates, compounds, and accelerates on itself. And good behavior creates good results. Sometimes we don't see them soon enough. Uh, but as long as we don't quit, we eventually will see them. That's what we're seeing with Volition America. If you want to support Folds of Honor or Volition America, just go to volitionamerica.com. Let's empower others to empower others to be free and happy with the options, opportunities, and time of favor that require the power of choice. Come join us again, John. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it, John. Thank you. You got it. Come back. Thank you. All right, my friend, another wow. terrific episode. I don't, I really don't mind the middle of the day session here. It's a lot easier than the yeah. 5 a.m. one. It is. Yeah. I don't have to put a hat on for my pillow hair. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have any hair, but I still put a hat on. So I will tell you, I'm going to have to use that. You know, I'm the dumbest one here. Uh, so explain it to me. That's yeah, yeah, yep, that helps. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I'm the dumbest yeah. one here. So explain it to me. Well, anyway, uh, I'm the dumbest one here. Can you explain to me your takeaway of the day? Yeah, it's, I was doing some reading this morning, you know, just in part of my study regime. And I was, you know, uh, I was reading some stuff around Stoic philosophy and, and uh, Cato in particular. And there was a play that was written by Joseph Addison back in 1712 that was titled Cato. Uh, Cato was one of the, you know, the key philosophers in, in Stoicism. And where I'm going with this has to do with all three of our guests to, uh, today as, as part of my takeaway on this. And I just kind of thought about this. But there was a line, and, and Cato was staged uh, during the Revolutionary War. You know, George Washington would actually you know, invite his troops to you know, stage the play as kind of a, a, a USO sort of a thing, uh, if you will. Uh, and, and he did this at Valley Forge. And there's a, there's a line that was often quoted uh, out of that play. We can't guarantee success. We can do something better. We can deserve it. And that whole framing, we can't guarantee success. We can do something better. We can deserve it. 
And it's not about entitlement. It's about a whole state of being. And when we go back and take a look at, you know, just kind of, you know, the furniture, yeah, how do you know we, we deserve a different way of working? We deserve to have a frictionless experience. Uh, no guarantee that it's going to be successful. Um, generationally, we can deserve to have this, you know, this cohesive, you know, cohesive collaborative experience, and we can leverage the diversity that comes out of that. And then also with, with John's, you know, uh, folds of folds of honor. Uh, the, the, that whole thing about we can't guarantee success at any point in time. We can do something better. We can actually deserve it. And that's a mindset. It's a mindset that begins to inform the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis. And that ends up creating the legacy of our life. That's where I'm going to go with that. I love it. I love it. And for me, you actually gave me the takeaway today. And it came from uh, your explanation of Lee Iacocca, who's one of you know my uh, mentors from afar. Uh, you actually got to work with him. Uh, but the idea of being unreasonable and what means to me is to be counterintuitive in nature uh, that just because something seems to be reasonable doesn't mean it's right or in the best interest of us all. Mm-hmm. And whether it's furniture or a generational perspective that's vertical versus lateral, or of course, I think volition in the power of our choices we can make unreasonable choices that this is not okay with me. The status quo is not okay. It's reasonable, but I'm going to be unreasoned uh, in my pursuit of something better. And it takes somebody to be unreasonable to become better, have a spirit of excellence, to enjoy the pursuit of the potential, like a Lee Iacocca, like a Blaine Bartlett, like a John Sapien, like a Marl Guillen, like a Michael Barlow. And, I think a testament to the takeaway of today is be unreasonable with what you believe in for the betterment of all and for the betterment of good. Coming from the dumbest one in the room, this is David Meltzer thanking Blaine Bartlett for joining me. Uh, Thank you so much. I'll see you next week, my friend. You bet, buddy. You take care. Love you. I will. Thank you. All right, everyone. I'm in Las Vegas. We have our VIP dinner tonight with some extraordinary people like Ryan Pineda, Flex Lewis, Forrest Griffin, just to name a few. We are in all types of cities with the greatest athletes, celebrities, entertainers, billionaires, millionaires, and entrepreneurs from Tom Brady to Drew Brees to unbelievable uh, thought leaders from Joe Dispenza. And the list will go on and on. If you can't keep up with us, then email me, david at dmelser.com. If you can't keep up and don't like email, then text me. Get alerts on every city we're going to be in, the meetups, the podcasts, the speeches, and of course, the VIP dinners that we're doing around the world in Mexico City, Houston, Orlando, San Diego, just to name you in the next few weeks. New York uh, will be there as well, keynoting Propellify as well. Thank you, everyone. Hopefully, you'll join us tonight. It's not too late. Just email david at dmeltzer.com. We're in Las Vegas. I want to thank Gigi and Raluca, my two extraordinary co-producers of Office Hours. This is episode 535 somehow. It doesn't look a day older than episode 499, but it has been 535. Coming from the dumbest one in the room, this is David Meller. Be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. Have a great day. See you tomorrow.